Good afternoon, everyone, and a welcome to UCL and this uh, lunchtime lecture. I'm Paul Eakins, and I'm Professor of Resources and Environmental Policy uh, here at the Institute for Sustainable Resources, and it's my pleasure to be chair of this, um, of this seminar. Uh, the event is part of UCL's climate campaign called Generation One, and that arises from the fact that we believe we are and need to be the new generation taking responsibility for climate action and turning science into actionable ideas. And of course, it's highly symbolic that this lecture is taking place at the same time as COP26, and we wish everyone up there all the best in arriving at the very strong deal that they need to reach. So please welcome, and you can join Generation One in a number of easy ways. You can pledge your climate action. You can find out more about it at ucl.ac.uk forward slash generation one and choose what action you will pledge and inspire others by sharing your pledge on social media or tweeting from this event using the hashtag um, slash, uh, I'm sorry, uh, hashtag uh, UCL uh, generation capital G one uh, capital O and no space between the words. Uh, the second way you can use it is to check out our new generation one podcast series with the first episode launching on the 3rd of November, which of course is tomorrow. So details of that are on the website. So to the uh, substance of today, we've got three great speakers. Um, we're going to start with uh, Nadia Amelie, who's a principal research fellow at the UCL Institute of Sustainable Resources. And her work focuses on economic finance and policy aspects of climate change and related energy issues. And she's been working uh, since her PhD on questions related to the financial barriers of low carbon investments and was recently awarded an ESRC starting grant focusing on the role of climate finance to meet the Paris goals. And she'll be followed by Dr. Joshua Ryan Collins. He's head of finance and macroeconomics at UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And his research interests include money and banking, sustainable finance, and the economics of land and housing. He's written a number of books, including Where Does Money Come From? Um, and uh, Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing, and Why Can't You Afford a Home? So pretty important stuff. And he's published in a number of uh, journals, as you would expect. He was previously senior economist at the New Economics Foundation. So I'm going to start with them to start with. Uh, and then we'll introduce uh, Ashish uh, when he joins us. So uh, Nadia, over to you and please kick off with the first of the talks in our seminar, how could fairer finance help us address climate change? Over to you. Thanks a lot, Paul. It's really my pleasure to be here today. Um, part of the presentation today, part of the work is really related about how we can mobilize investments for the low carbon transition. And the one angle that I'd like to take is what this really means when it comes to developing markets, developing countries. The talk I'm going to give today is based on one of our recent analyses that have been just published in Nature Communications. So if you'd like to, hear, to read more, uh, more details, please check our last uh, analysis. And the paper is really about 
how basically it's difficult to mobilize investment in really in developing markets, especially African nations. When, before we go into more details about uh, really the studies, I just want to show you the, um, the challenge that we face today in terms of climate investments. The chart, the blue line, really shows us where we are in terms of climate finance mobilized over the year. And then if you see the, um, the green area, it's where basically the, the amount of investment needed to meet the targets. You can see that despite there has been a positive trend and increasing trend over time, we are still quite a, quite, quite a way from what is needed to meet the 1.5 degrees. The range of estimates is pretty large because based on IPCC uh, different models, but definitely we need to move billion to trillions and we are still quite away from the target. The picture is even more complicated when it comes to the investment flows and how they are distributed around the world. Here you can see really where most of the money went, and you can definitely see three major areas, which are North America, Western Europe, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia, sorry, East Asia and Pacific, with China literally playing a bigger role in these areas. But there are other continents and other parts of the world where it's much more difficult to mobilize finance, to mobilize investment. And in particular, if you look at the African continent and um, the size of the continent and the level of investments is pretty low, and especially in sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Africa. And that's really what those trends are telling us, is that really the country context, it's really critical in determining investments, because really the capacity to mobilize funding is really linked to the local enabling environments. So I'm talking here about the macroeconomic conditions, the policy stability, the business confidence that investors they do have when it comes to investment. And the way those factors are basically factored in investment decision is really in terms of what are the risks that investors need to face when invest in, in a country context. So a key sort of variable that captures those perceived investment risk, it can be the cost of capital. The cost of capital is simply a financial measure that tells us um, the basically the expected return that an investment has to have in order to invest in a given country, in a given context, given also the kind of risks that investors will consider when investing. And this measure is really critical in understanding really um, how basically the carbonization pathways can be or can look like in the future. So we do need to take into account those cost of capitals the, uh, in our assumption. And in our analysis, really, we try to show how those decarbonization pathways differ when the cost of capital is considered at a local level, at a regional level. And again, just here to show you a little bit of picture on how it looks like the cost of capital around the world. Here, this is a sort of simplified uh, version of, of the world. You can see there are some macro regions and uh, it reflects mainly the, the region in our modeling exercise. But what is striking is that there is a huge difference uh, across countries in terms of cost of capital. You see areas of the world like Europe where it's pretty low, it's around 4%, in other areas where it's actually pretty high. And in particular, you see in Africa that 
it reaches about 12% the cost of capital. And this is even an average value because when we zoom into a single country, then you have huge differences. There are countries like Congo, Zimbabwe, where the cost of capital reaches 30%. And that's because those are some of the riskiest area in Africa. And other countries in, in, uh, within the continent where the cost of capital is slightly low, like Morocco, South Africa, where the, as I said, the macroeconomic condition are slightly better compared to Congo or other, or other countries. And why this is so really important, and that's something also we theorize in our analysis, it's this idea of a potential climate investment trap in developing countries. It builds a little bit on the concept of the poverty trap, which is again a, an idea of when a country is so poor that cannot escape the poverty trap. And here we are facing a very similar situation. And where a climate investment trap occurs, where climate investments remain chronically low. And that's because it's, it's due to a set of self-reinforcing mechanisms that are set into place. And here, the way we sort of theorize this, uh, this climate investment trap. When you think about uh, developing countries, as I showed before, they do already have an higher cost of capital compared to Europe or North America or other developing markets. This is already a disadvantage because it's much more difficult to mobilize climate investment. That means that you have worse climate impacts that further impact the economy of the country in terms of low production, high unemployment, high, high instability. And again, the countries even perceived with higher domestic risk, and usually also those countries that do have underdeveloped financial markets. And again, it's a, it's a loop where you will increase again the risk premium to invest in a given country that fell back to the uh, to an higher cost of capital and that's a sort of again trap that we see in developing contexts where it's very difficult to mobilize capital and the cost of capital can just increase over time because we are not taking action we now just want to really give a flavor of the relevance of of those aspects and then we briefly present some key results from our analysis. It's really uh, here, those are the results for the African continent. And here we, we compare what are the real impact of the cost of capital, this 12% cost of capital, compared to the, a global value. So an average value, most of the modeling exercise, they just assume there is an other rate, which is equal and uniform across the globe. In our case, uh, in Africa, we do have to pay 12% interest rate when we want to invest there. And the, the difference with the global, global rate would be quite striking. Again, with the global scenario, we get much more electricity because investments are cheaper, the capital is cheaper. We do about more emission for the same level of investment. If you compare the red line and the blue line, we do have the very similar investment level, but we just achieve less when we consider the, uh, the real financing cost in Africa. Another interesting, uh, I would say, uh, result, it's about what we can estimate in terms of effects on the cost of capital if we would introduce basically policies that can reduce the cost of capital. So what are the effects on investments that we can get? And here we try to, to understand what are these effects of reducing the cost of capital that in Africa is 12%. And let's assume that it goes down to this uniform value 
the 6%. And let's assume again that this result is achieved in a sort of fast scenario. So by 2050, or it's reached over the, the century. So by the end of the century. And again, the results are quite relevant because the faster we reduce the cost of capital, the more we get more uh, green electricity. So we get 40% more compared to the baseline scenario. And of course, this comes with an higher level of uh, investment behind. But I would say that the even most important results is in terms of uh, emission reduction. So the, if we reduce the cost of capital, net zero emission in Africa will be achieved much faster by 2050 um, compared to the reg scenario, so in 2058, sorry. And that means is we gain almost 10 years uh, compared to the, uh, the baseline scenario. So again, early actions is really important because it helps us to, need to reach net zero much faster than in normal condition. I try to think about then what are the channels to influence the cost of capital in developing countries. And of course, the first channel is through the private capital markets. So we need to make sure that financial markets, the private money goes in developing markets. But when we look at the current financial markets and the current sustainable finance frameworks, we can see that there is not, they are not really designed for developing countries. There is a strong focus now on local bond assets, but there is no, no mention of the target country. So it seems that the current sustainable frameworks are more developed for developed markets like Europe or North America rather than developing countries. For instance, the use of sustainable finance plan that I would say it's one of the most ambitious one, it doesn't really include any references to developing context. Even the ESG approach, ESG stands for the environmental social governance approaches and the risk approaches somehow really penalize developing markets. Developing markets are much more riskier countries. It's where the physical risks are felt most are also, they don't perform well if you think about the social governance criteria. So they are somehow penalized by those approaches that are now quite developed in the current sustainable finance frameworks. Another channel is then through the public and the development finance. This is, I would say, the most user channels. So public institutions, development banks that are investing in, uh, in developing markets can even play a stronger role by providing long-term capital and access to low capital and can try to foster local markets for it by supporting the, the grow or the green bond market. And the last entrance in the picture are more the central banks and how we can use financial regulation to, to really improve access to finance in developing markets. And again, here the action should be uh, focus on lowering the cost of capital and really underwriting risks, risks in order to rebalance this uh, uh, risk return profile of investments in developing countries. Just really some final remarks before I stop. I would say that really developing economies are incredibly impacted by the, the cost of capital rates. Our analysis shows that we do need to act to improve access to finance, because this will have a huge impact on the speed of the timing of the transition. We can really speed up the transition to net zero by 10 years, for instance, in Africa. The current finance framework are not really taking into account those, uh, those aspects, in, in particular the country dimension. So if we want really to avoid those climate investment trap, we need to trigger the investment and improve 
access to finance. I think in, especially now after the COVID, we do have an opportunity to reframe international market finance. I want then to close with a quote from a former World Bank president, Jim Yong Kim. And, uh, and it's really about uh, when uh, we don't see capital going somewhere, and here he mentioned in particular the private capital, then we really need to ask ourselves, uh, what are the conditions that are really uh, ampering those investments? And if the conditions are, are, are not right, then we do need to de-risk project sectors and think even about entire countries. I think I'm stopping here and uh, I'll thank you everyone for and look forward to the question. Well, thank you very much, Nadia, uh, for that. And of course, it, it answers a question which I've had in, in my mind for some time, which is that uh, if you look at the uh, analyses of IRENA, the uh, International Institute for Renewable Energy, they're frequently saying that renewable energy is now as cheap or not cheaper than, uh, or, or cheaper than fossil fuels in many uh, countries, including developing countries. And yet we're not seeing the investment uh, into those countries. And clearly the uh, points that you've identified uh, might provide us something with a, um, uh, an explanation of that. So let's uh, turn then to our second speaker whom I've already introduced uh, and we'll go to uh, uh, Josh Ryan Collins. Before I do that, let me just tell you that if you want to ask some questions, um, please uh, do so via Slido. So you simply uh, Google Slido and call that up. And the uh, event code, which you will need to enter in order to get into um, our part of Slido uh, to ask your question, is hashtag UCL in uh, uppercase and then climate in lowercase. So that's if you want to put in some questions. Um, because we will have time for questions at the end. But uh, for now, let's go over to our second speaker, who is Josh Ryan Collins. Josh. Thanks, Paul. And thanks uh, for, the, uh, for everyone who's attending today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about um, finance, land use change and, and the environmental transition. Um, I'm gonna talk really about the financial system itself um, and the way in which I think it's a driver of environmental degradation. Um, so a bit of political economy mixed in there um, with my uh, analysis. Um, but the first point I wanted to make really was just, just I guess in a way to pick up on what Nadia was saying towards the end there, um, the, the current sort of framework for uh, that financial regulators and central banks are focused on is um, with regard to the role of finance in, in climate change and environmental uh, transition is to think about the risks that the transition poses to the financial system. Um, so they have a very much a sort of risk oriented analysis. Um, now, the, the main way they're thinking about it so far, although this is changing, if you look at this slide is to focus on um, the what's called the financial materiality so um that what's happening is the, the financial system is lending or, or funding harmful business activities that are degrading the environment uh, those business activities will have to change there'll have to be a transition um to, for us to reach net zero 
and reach our biodiversity targets. And that will lead to stranded assets um, held by those fi <laughs> financial organizations holding those assets, those loans or that, that equity. Um, and central banks are focusing more on, on you know, how to um, re reduce that risk. So for example, by asking banks to hold more capital against particular types of loan. But there's another type of risk um, and that is the risk caused by the financing of harmful business activities directly onto the environment. So that's the second loop here. Um, and this is um, what you might call environment, environmental materiality. <clears throat> um, and it's this that I think we need to start thinking about more seriously, because this, the, the destruction of the environment um, can lead to systemic macro financial risks to the, to the whole economy. Um, the loss of you know, biomes, key biomes such as rainforest, arboreal forest, um, uh, can lead to um, tipping points, which lead to um, systemic changes in, in the natural state of these systems, which can lead to climate change and pose systemic threats to economies. But there's been rather less attention um, to the financial materiality that these biophysical risks um, can create. Now, what's interesting about this of course is that the areas in the world where these key biomes areas of enormously important biodiversity um, biodiversity rich areas are mainly in developing or emerging market economies rather than in advanced economies um, so we have this sort of natural capital asset um, which is key to the functioning of the earth system um, held in economies which are growing a uh, uh, need to grow in order to reach the levels of um, welfare uh, that we're used to in in high income economies. And of course, the, the sort of global economy and the global financial system is set up in such a way that the only way at the moment they can achieve that level of growth is by basically destroying those natural capital assets. Um, now, this this goes back a long way. Um, but essentially, because the Industrial Revolution arguably was was based on this type of, of system, uh, the UK Industrial Revolution, for example, there's an academic paper which shows that the UK um, absorbed seven times its own um, its own sort of planetary resources in going through the Industrial Revolution by importing resources from all over the world, including slave labour, of course. Um, so it's not a new thing. Um, but it's, it, it continues to this day, and there's been some, some a sort of burst of analysis quite recently, burst of academic work recently, pointing out that peripheral economies, particularly developing countries, specialise in this extractive and pollutive industries, um, found typically at the beginning stages of value production, um, whereas the core high-income economies tend to consume the majority of global resources. Um, but they don't suffer from the social and environmental costs, the floods that we've seen, the um, desertification that we're seeing in parts of Africa and other places. Um, and of course, they don't get the same returns because uh, when they export the goods that they've that have been manufactured um, using those resources from developing countries, they tend to get a much higher return because they're, they're coming in at the end of the whether there's higher value to be added at the end of the production process. Um, so um, there's some analysis here showing that between 95 and 2015, all regions except high income economies were net providers of raw materials with their production exceeding their consumption.
Now, I want to just focus in or, on an analysis of this, looking particularly at the agricultural finance nexus, agri-finance, as it's called, because I think whereas in the Industrial Revolution, you, you clearly had countries like the UK and other European countries <coughs> sort of physically going in and asserting their, um, you know, colonial empires and physically grabbing resources from other countries, including slavery, etc. Today, it's a bit more subtle, but a similar kind of dynamic is occurring. And, and it kind of comes through the global trade, but also the global financial system, which is set up in such a way as essentially to support this uh, extraction process um, from the, the periphery to the, the core. And finance lies at the heart of this. So some analysis shows that top 50 global banks provided almost 400 billion of loans in equity uh, and underwriting services to the agricultural sector, around a fifth of which is associated with biodiversity loss, recent analysis. Um, and it's not just banks, but also um, big institutional investors, including passive asset managers such as BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street, um, are strongly associated with holding very large blocks of equity in um, the Brazilian Amazon, for example. This is some analysis few, done a few years ago um, by Galas et al. <laughs> so these companies have potentially very significant influence in stopping these kinds of investments and activities, usually done by quite large um, multinational agri-food companies. They're, they're highly consolidated firms <clears throat> spread all over the world. So that's one way in which finance um, degrades the, um, the, the environment. But there's another way, which is we've seen agricultural land increasingly become seen as an alternative financial asset over the last sort of 15, 20 years or so. Um, this is partially, I think, due to sort of collapse in interest rates on other forms of safe assets, such as government bonds, which investors would typically invest in. Um, uh, and, and so um, land then becomes more attractive because it's a relatively safe asset. You can't hide it, it tends to appreciate in value over time. You can secure capital gains and rents from it. And of course, if it's used for food production, you can, you can secure rents directly from the, um, uh, uh, from the farmers farming the, the land. Um, so there's some research that shows around almost 50 million hectares, it's about the size of Spain, of large-scale land acquisitions for agricultural purposes were um, conducted by foreign investors um, between 2000 and 2014, um, mainly, again, in the Global South, um, especially Africa. Um, and this chart um, by a paper by um, Altaf Nashish Alami and co-authors shows you the, cross and the, the net flows of large-scale land acquisitions, essentially. So, um, the red um, nodes and the red flows um, uh, show imports. So you can see the United States and Europe um, <clears throat> importing huge amounts of uh, effectively buying up land in these countries for use, uh, mainly for agri agricultural purposes, um, whereas um, uh, developing and emerging markets essentially selling, selling that land um, uh, and these these are the dynamics that continue to this to this day. Um, now, this is problematic because, as I said, um, the incentives for financial investors in in land um, 
tend to be towards exploiting that land and maximizing profit upon it. And this tends to run against the preservation of biodiversity and, um, and maintenance of, of you know, high, high carbon stocks, for example, in rainforests. So typically is a conversion of what's called underutilized land for more commercial purposes, intensive agriculture being the obvious one, typically the addition of infrastructure, which damages um, uh, biodiversity. Um, can lead to wholesale land use change and habitat fragmentation. Uh, typically, if you want to maximize commercial land productivity, you have to have um, the enforcement of land titles and consolidation of land, which tends to exclude um, indigenous communities who may, be, may have decades of experience in how to preserve uh, land in its, in its more biodiverse format and have small scaling, less damaging farming practices. Um, and typically to maximize commercial value, there's a preference for cash and flexible crops um, for export. Uh, you probably know the, the guilty candidates, soy, beef, coffee, sugar, these kinds of, of, of um, cash crops, um, which leads again to large scale industrial farming uh, practices. Um, and in terms of scalability, uh, own, lease, own and lease out models um, and ag agricultural land securitization um, are the preferred models by investors. So they're not actually managing the, the land themselves. That tends to be outsourced. Um, and this leads to less transparency uh, around who actually owns the land and who's responsible for looking after it, which can mitigate against sustainability uh, disclosures um, and of course, disclosures is what financial authorities are, are trying to get banks and, and, and companies to do. The task force on um, nature-related financial disclosures is a similar one now on biodiversity, but it gets more and more difficult with this kind of um, uh, sort of complicated financial instruments and arrangements around things like agri agricultural land. So what, you know, what can we do about this? Um, for me, the obvious alternative is, is to focus a bit less perhaps on de-risking um, investment and focus, certainly in a high income economies anyway, and, and focus a bit more on uh, the regulation of uh, to, regulation to reduce ecologically damaging financial flows. Um, and there's plenty that central banks and financial supervisors can do. Most obviously they can um, force banks to hold more capital against damaging uh, uh, lending, but they could also align monetary policy. So quantitative easing um, should be aligned with the risks posed by transition risk and physical risk posed by climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, <coughs> and there could be introduced exclusionary policies on, for example, financing that leads to the loss or degradation of, of uh, rainforests and other such biomes. Um, this is standard practice for um, big, large companies and, and ES, ESG frameworks, there's no reason that central banks should not be adopting similar kinds of, of policies. Um, and then on the sort of global financial architecture level, um, <clears throat> what, what, could, what could we do to try and mitigate some of those ecologically unequal exchanges that I talked about at the beginning? Um, well, one interesting concept is the idea of nature-based sovereign bonds. And, and these would essentially enable um, developing countries that owned um, biomes or, or very biodiverse rich land um, 
to issue debt linked to the preservation of, of those natural capital assets. So if those assets were being preserved or expanded, um, the debt, the interest rate would be linked, the interest rate would fall or at least not rise. In contrast, if damage was taking place, the, the return to the investor would, would rise. So you'd have a sort of state contingent <coughs> liability, um, which could encourage and sort of bring in bring the right incentives together for both lender and investor. It's very early days with this, and there's a there's a lot of challenges to make it work, I think, but it is one interesting way forward. Um, you have in, for example, inflation-linked uh, bonds that are that are issued and have been quite successful. Um, there's no reason we couldn't link uh, sovereign debt to other forms of positive outcome. And what we've seen with the COVID crisis, of course, is the debt uh, uh, or in developing countries rising massively and the cost of borrowing, uh, particularly in uh, other currencies, rising massively. Um, and that brings me to the second point, really, which is this idea of ecologically linked special drawing rights. Now, special drawing rights are issued by the International Monetary Fund, and they're essentially a supplementary reserve asset. Um, and they're determined as a weight, a weighted basket of five major currencies. And they're, they're essentially a way to enable um, countries um, <clears throat> to boost their foreign exchange reserves. Um, and they're particularly useful for countries which find it difficult to borrow in foreign countries, typically dollars or, or, or yen, for example. Um, and recently, the, the IMF um, did make a $640 billion um, issue of special drawing rights. Um, and it was encouraged, trying to encourage high income economies to transfer some of their SDRs to developing countries. But what would be even more interesting would be to rethink the issuance of these special drawing rights according to the natural capital that different countries actually own as a way again of encouraging them to preserve um, those natural capital and essentially recognizing that globally we need to preserve these kinds of, of assets. Um, I'm probably running over my time a bit but um, some implications for policymakers I suppose is to think about financial values and incentives and practices and the system more generally and how currently it's in this very extractive type of mode and, and the, the need to reform institutional relations um, connecting macro financial and sociological systems um, and that there's, there's not a lot of transparency particularly in some in an area like agri-finance and land at the moment um, i would argue that policy interventions need to move beyond this sort of market fixing focus on prices um, and think about the, the types of interventions that would prevent uh, us reaching these these ecological tipping points beyond which we're facing catastrophic losses. And those are not really subject to market incentives or market shifts. Um, I think there needs to be a bigger role for the state in shaping those markets. Um, and the financial system, I think, could play a, a key role. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> okay, thank you, Josh. And um, thanks for that. And uh, it makes me think that uh, we heard at the COP, obviously, that, that 100 or so countries have signed something saying they're gonna stop deforestation. Uh, well, the sorts of things we've been hearing from Josh uh, will be what they will actually need to do in mm. order to go beyond these kind of statements that they're going to do, uh, um, you know, make these commitments uh, by 2030. So we are uh, now going to move to our third speaker. Welcome, Ashish. Uh, this is uh, Ashish Gadiali. Uh, he's an activist in residence at the Sarah Parker Remax 
Film Center at the Institute for Advanced Studies here at UCL. He's a filmmaker and an activist who organizes with the climate justice collective Wretched of the Earth. So I think we know where, uh, you know, where, where he's coming from. He's a member of the coordinating committee of the COP26 Civil Society Coalition and a commissioning editor at Lawrence and Wissart Books, where he's developing a new soundings imprint to be launched with a slate of books on race and ecology in 2022. So I'm going to go over to you, Ashish. Um, uh, before I do, just uh, I've noticed there's some questions come in in the Slido. That's great. Keep them coming, please. Um, and uh, we should have five to 10 minutes at the end just to tackle these. So uh, over to you, Ashish. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Um, yeah, and, and thank you for that introduction. I mean, I, I think it's important to um, to clarify that I'm not, uh, I, you know, the context from which I'm speaking is not that of a, of a, a kind of a, of a researcher. Um, it is of, I mean, you know, my background is as a grassroots activist. I've kind of, um, I, you know, I've been work, I've worked in communities, uh, often in marginalised communities, looking at questions of um, of, of power and representation. Um, and I've kind of come into the discourse around around climate very much from from that from that perspective, um, and and actually have come into residency at UCL also from that perspective and thinking um, about the kind of about the the, the field of of, of climate um, research and its impact on on climate action um, more broadly um, uh, through the through the prism of um, of, of justice. I guess um, you know where where that work has has um, where, where that perspective has kind of brought me is to a um, uh, I, 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 a sense of of um, of really what is 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 kind of grossly lacking in the contemporary intergovernmental discourse around around climate action, um, and I think that um, I think that the fo I think focusing that on um, issues around um, climate finance is 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 kind of fruitful because I mean if we you know so for example you know will since the G7 summit uh, earlier this summer we've um, we've seen that the um, that the that the kind of uh, headline headline kind of call to action from um, from well you know from the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, but um, for, but from kind of uh, the most powerful um, world leaders in general has been um, to call on the richest countries to to meet uh, meet the hundred hundred billion dollar uh, climate pledge which is you know as a as a headline in itself um, quite often. Um, does succeed in dominating media headlines and sounds like a an appropriate call to action. But I think it's really important that we um, recognise how uh, the, the, the well, we, that we acknowledge the full context in which pledges such as this are coming forward. You know, na namely that, that that it's a um, it's a it, it's the renewal of a pledge that has essentially be failed to like be, been uh, the, the meeting of which has, has sort of failed to happen since it was first made at Copenhagen at COP15 in in um, uh, in 2009. Um, and so during which time we've seen uh, both global temperatures um, rise. So we're now um, fast approaching temperature, you know, average atmospheric temperatures of, of 1.2 um, degrees. And, um, 
And, and as a result of that, we've already lived through a decade of um, hugely increasing uh, climate uh, impacts. Um, the, the costs of which are uh, borne not by the, the countries of, of, um, of uh, or not borne most emphatically by the leaders of, uh, by, the, by the citizens of G7 nations, but by um, black and brown people uh, who uh, live on the front lines of climate breakdown, mostly um, in, in the global south. So it, it, it remains um, very much a, a question of, of racial um, equity. Um, and during this last 10 years, for example, the, the costs of, um, of climate induced loss and damage alone. So when we talk about $100 billion, uh, a $100 billion a year pledge in climate finance, we're talking about, um, about uh, a, a budgets that would be split, well, that would be largely um, within the kind of current framework focused on um, mitigation, that's attempts to, uh, that's sort of uh, approaches to decarbonize the, the um, Earth's atmosphere. Um, that money that would be spent, uh, split between mitigation and adaptation to the, um, the uh, growing impacts of climate breakdown. Um, the, the reality within, within which that delayed um, pledge is now being discussed is one in which the the costs of climate induced loss and damage alone have um, risen in excess to in excess of 150 billion dollars a year. So um, at, at the level of governance, I think that it really does need to be acknowledged that the the discourse that we're seeing. Um, grab so much resource and so much um, media attention right now in Glasgow, it, it is, is wholly inappropriate. I mean, you know, to, to, to talk of, um, of coming good finally on a $100 billion a year pledge when we are, in which the question of loss and damage is not actually being, um, being addressed, um, is uh, amounts to um, sign off on a climate deficit. Um, and that is a deficit, the burden of which will fall on those who are least responsible for climate breakdown and also least resilient in the face of the effects of, of climate breakdown. So I think that um, I think you know the, it's useful to to go a, a step further um, in, in uh, understanding what the contemporary intergovernmental discourse around climate finance amounts to, um, and that is um, that is a, the sign off on a on a on a kind of projection of what you know UN uh, experts, the UN Special Rapporteur, has described as um, a future defined by climate. Plunging 120 million people in, you know, I think that's a, um, a a low estimate. Um, and I guess it's it's in in light of that that I, I kind of um, I, I think it, that we need to um, be looking really um, significantly beyond the um, the the decarbonisation agenda that is um, that is kind of characterised by. Um, 
for example, the the the, the UN FCCC's um, race to zero campaign that you know is kind of dominating discussions um, in Glasgow over the next fortnight, um, and and that we really need to start to um, move beyond the the kind of paradigm you know that that, that Josh has sort of described um, of of kind of a growth based climate action agenda and 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 start to um proceed towards um i, I guess what i can only understand really as a, as a justice um based paradigm okay thank you ashish um a passionate call there for climate justice which um you know one hears often and one hears many people saying that it should happen but um at the moment, it certainly isn't. And uh, like you, I, I share your, your concern that um, well over 10 years after that 100 billion was first mooted, um, uh, all the best we've been able to come up with is yet more years of delay. Uh, so that is, uh, is uh, really concerning. Okay, so let's go and visit Slido and have a look and see what questions we've got. Um, we have got uh, quite a few questions. Um, so I'm going to uh, start by asking Nadia a question that came straight out of your presentation. What is it that drives the cost of capital in developing countries and why is it much higher than in developed countries? Thanks, Rob Paul. Yeah, it's uh, it, it really relates about the the, the condition, the working, uh, uh, the environment, and the enabling factors that are in a country. Um, our analysis has shown basically that the cost of capital is really driven by the country risk factors. So basically, investors what they are interested in when they they lend money, it's really you know, what's the appropriate return that I can get in investing in a specific project in a given country. So if I can invest in a solar plant in Africa, rather than in Germany, how much more I should ask in terms of return to compensate for the risks. And really what it drives the risk is the, the local context, is those macroeconomic conditions, the policy stability, the currency risk. So when uh, that was also touched a bit by Josh, when you invest in, the, in developing countries, there is a strong uh, currency risk there. There is quite, I mean, volatility is very high. And, uh, you know, on top of the project risk, you need to add also this currency risk. There is also a lot about corruption, governance, policy stability. So I think all those really factors that can be summarized in the macroeconomic condition that uh, are linked to a specific country are the main drivers. And those aspects, they do influence the business confidence that investors feel and perceive when investing in a, in a project. And um, as I said, there are countries like Japan and Germany where they, I mean, they're really perceived as a safe country. So the cost of capital doesn't go half or more than 3%. As I said, there are countries in, in Africa where it goes up to 30%. And that really reflects those macroeconomic conditions that you, you do have in the country. Okay, thanks, uh, Nadia. And I'm, I'm very struck, I mean, get thinking to something that occurred in, in Josh's uh, framework, that as these developing countries are hit harder and harder by climate change, those risks are going to go up, they're not going to go down. And that therefore, uh, left to themselves, those costs of capital are going to go up even, up even further. So expecting those countries actually to, 
to attract the investment is going to become increasingly challenging. Let's um, go to a question for Josh here, which uh, uh, relates to something you said about central banks, Josh. So officials at central banks believe technology will mitigate climate change. Where does this view come from? Is it realistic? Do you think it's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the questioner means by technology, but I do think that central banks have put quite a lot of faith in markets um, to solve these problems. And you can see that really uh, with the very strong emphasis the regulators have put on this idea of um, this, the disclosure of climate risks or, or, or carbon related risks. Um, I mean, there's a whole sort of terminology around it now. And most famously, Mark, Mark Carney advocated this approach uh, with the task force on uh, climate related um, financial risks. And the idea of this really is that the problem is that it's, it's not markets aren't very good at pricing the risk and they're not very good at understanding it and putting it putting a price on it, which mean which would enable investors to then sort of realize the risk and then uh, prices would adjust for a smooth transition. Um, now, I've I've written quite a lot about why this is problematic. And the main reason it's problematic, I think, is because what you're talking about with climate change and and the green transition and biodiversity loss is um, is not really risk, but it's actually uncertainty. So um, in a sort of Keynesian sense of fundamental uncertainty, whereby you really have no idea, you can't even assign a probability to a set of different events. And that's the standard approach that financial risk uses. It's, it, it typically looks at previous occurrences of, of, of things and then assigns a probability based on that. With climate change, we'd look, we're talking about tipping points. Um, we're talking about changes in state, which we've never seen before. So it's not possible to assign that kind of quantitative estimate of the risk. And this means we can't rely on the market in my view. I mean, we, to some extent we, we can use the market, but the market needs to be guided into the areas to support and, and even more importantly, to stop financing what are clearly unsustainable forms of activity. Right, so obviously a, a pretty fundamental role there for, um, for central banks. Um, yeah. A question to you then, uh, Ashish, if I may. Um, and the questioner has asked, uh, what can we expect from COP26 to improve access to finance? And uh, I guess particularly to those developing countries that, uh, that currently don't see as much of it as they should. And perhaps I can add my own question to that is, and what do you think that climate justice actually demands from COP26 in order to um, improve access to finance? Um, I mean, it, you know, if the, I think if the, if the question is specific to COP26, I mean, I, 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 at this stage in proceedings, I don't have a huge amount of my energy sort of directed uh, towards COP26. I think that there was time for those conversations earlier in the year. I don't think that conversation, I mean, the, the crucial arena for, um, for uh, progress on climate justice within the, the COP arena is loss and damage, which, um, you know, ha, ha, it isn't on the agenda as something that would, will be um, advanced uh, significantly. A lot of the um, intention around that is kind of uh, focused around the Santiago um, agreement. It, it's a contentious issue and it was it's, it's seen as what, you know, kind of has, has uh, you know, led to um, 
uh, led to sort of divisions, um, at, you know, Madrid, and, and it seemed to be the the, the kind of um, the, the issue that can that can divide cops. Um, um, so I mean, I think that, and that it might, and that it would be, it would be. I, I think that the fear, say, you know, within sort of the, you know, the UK cabinet office, or you know, where, you know, where kind of uh, organising has has kind of um, has kind of preceded this event um, in the UK over the past 12, 12 24 months. Um, there's a kind of fear that it kind of it, that, it, that it, uh, it opens Pandora's box, and that that we uh, might then find ourselves, you know, kind of being um, forced to acknowledge responsibility for, you know, for for historic uh, historically rooted inequalities that go back go back centuries. I mean, I guess the issue is that it might, and you know, if we do actually want to proceed, um, uh, you know, if we do want to participate as you know British citizens, as you know, UCL academics in a, a, a sustainable and just future, we might need to um, look harder at difficult, um, difficult questions. So, I mean, for my money, what we need to be doing is is radically looking at COP26's failure to um, address the the issues that could actually seed a pathway towards um, ecological equilibrium. I don't think that's on the table yet at all. And I think that you know the perspectives that both uh, the research that Josh is describing and you know Nadia's work point to very very important failings of the current paradigm. You know, for me, the work begins uh, as soon as this cops over. You know, how do we actually start to address its failures, which are already written in stone, as far as I can see, and 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 start um, building. Uh, you know, over the, how do we make sure that we actually get ourselves on a, a kind of uh, a, 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 a reasonable path of global governance over the years and the decade ahead? Okay, well, thanks very much, and and certainly like like you, I think the action really has to start after COP26. Um, when I first heard the, the all the various targets that have been put in place, I was quite excited because it was um, an advance on where we had been before. But um, I must say, I don't need any more targets for 2050. Um, I actually need some action on Monday morning that uh, along the lines that, that either Nadia or Josh have said that is actually going to show how we're going to sort this out um, in ways that, that uh, meet the scale of the problem. So let's um, let's go back. Well, why why don't I give just a quickie to both uh, Nadia and um, and Josh on this finance uh, stuff? Uh, do you agree with Ashish that um, basically on the finance stuff, COP has failed, and we need to see what comes out afterwards? Or do you reckon there's still something to play for there, uh, Nadia? Thanks. Well, I something that I really would like to see from the COP is especially thinking about the climate page page of this 100 billion per year is to add something to those quantitative targets. I mean, this, this is more a volume target, like, okay, we need to mobilize this 100 billion. But again, if we look at the empirical evidence of the capital flows today, we see that actually very little is going to the most vulnerable country. Even these financial flows mobilized to developing markets are going to some of the usual country with somehow some prospect for growth, but they're not going to the most vulnerable one. I mean, they're not going to, to Africa, for instance, or some very difficult countries context in Africa. So I think part of the pledge needs to include this, this country dimension uh, if we want to see this transition more globally. So next to the 100 billion target, we need to include also 
the country dimension. Because as I said, financial markets are not designed for developing countries. The sustainable finance frameworks are not taken into account those contexts. And so the hope will be that those international climate pledges or agreements can take it. Okay, I'm not aware of anything on the agenda that's going to do that, but that might be again something to something to really focus on afterwards. Uh, Josh, over to you. What what are you expecting or hoping for from COP um, on the finance side, apart from this hundred billion? Yeah, I I I feel like the hundred billions become something of a of a red herring. I have to say, I, I think it's not the quantity of finance as Mark Nadia was alluding to. I think, but the the quality of it, and I think. Um, we haven't seen enough uh, support really for developing countries to develop their own financial and fiscal space and capability. Uh, I think that's key. We, we need to find ways of, of uh, relieving debt, for example, um, of uh, financial mechanisms, as I was saying in my presentation, that incentivize these countries to preserve their natural uh, biodiversity assets and you know, be able to actually make money from from the preservation of those those assets. Um, but but even more importantly, I think for for high income economies, there needs to be less emphasis on more money going into you know complicated projects all over the world, which may or may not su support the transition, and more emphasis on stopping finance going into damaging ecological activities. Um, and there's a lot of scientific consensus over the types of activities that are clearly damaging, rainforest deforestation being probably the most obvious one, but there's many others. And there are international agreements around these things. Um, but the financial system uh, remains quite wedded to, instead of just, or financial regulators, seem to be very wedded to market solutions, which do not actually just stop this kind of financing from from happening. So I think it's in a way it's a call for simplicity. We, you know, we used to just prevent banks from lending for things that we thought would be damaging. Um, even banks in the 1950s and 60s were not allowed basically to lend for mortgages, which were seen as leading to house price appreciation and speculation. Um, you know, you'd had things called credit guidance, quantitative limits on, on the types of lending that banks could be done. All of this sort of was thrown out in the, in the sort of neoclassical, neoliberal revolution of the 70s and the 80s with a, this belief in the power of the market to allocate more efficiently. I think we need to, a sort of fundamental revisiting uh, of that kind of approach. So I would sort of call for just more simple regulation and, and prevention of damaging financial flows. Okay, and I think we've just got time for one more. Thanks, Josh. Uh, just one more question. This comes from Pedro Garcia, who uh, really enjoyed the session. And uh, this is a question to Nadia. What role does incorporating impact-weighted decision-making frameworks play in reducing capital costs for impact investing? So that's the kind of investing that is, uh, ha has a wider frame of return than just a financial return. Nadia, can you manage that in a minute? Uh, I try. Well, I guess that's the, really the way. I mean, and that's the impact that we do. We want to expect. Try to rebalance this risk return profile, take into account other factors, or whether it's a public institution or financial regulators or central banks, as uh, again Church was saying before, can step in, takes part of the risk and ready the risk and rebalance this uh, uh, this basically return risk profile. And that would be really the way to do it, if. You want to mobilize it's really part of the say 
can we make the condition right for finance to flows in the assets we want to see more investments? Right, well, I, th I think there's a fair bit of agreement across the piece here that um, actually the market's left to themselves and not, uh, A, they're not doing what we need done and B, they can't and won't do what we need done. So there is a whole range of interventions that are going to be necessary. Um, uh, if we're to get uh, both the finance flowing in the right direction, but also anything approaching climate justice. So Ashish, thank you very much for your um, very eloquent um, putting that concept on the table. Uh, that's it. We have come to the end of our time. Um, uh, this isn't the last of these seminars. So the next one is going to take place on Thursday, the 4th of November. So just a couple of days time. And that uh, is gonna be on a very, very different topic, uh, which is how do we manufacture personalized machines? Um, I'm sorry, how do we manufacture personalized medicines? not machines, medicines, although very much same kind of thought of, of um, scientific development that's much more individually focused. Uh, that's going to have the speaker, Dr. Kazim Rafiq. Um, so do uh, come, same time, same time. Uh, I guess same place isn't relevant as we'll be online um, and see you then. But uh, for now, thank you very much to my speakers, uh, Nadia Amelie, Ashish Gadiali, and Josh Ryan Collins for a really interesting uh, seminar on one of the most important topics facing COP and as Ashish was keen to stress the post-COP period which is when actually um, these uh, pledges are going to have to be turned into real action. So thank you very much and uh, cheerio for now.